This episode was brought to you by Passion Lily, a fair trade fashion brand with classic silhouettes and playful prints. Browse their collections at ConsciousLifeAndStyle.com forward slash passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N. How can we make sustainable fashion more culturally and politically relevant? Fashion's environmental and social impact often gets overlooked by the climate movement and by governments, though this is slowly starting to change if you listen to episode 79 with Elizabeth Klein. Similarly, the conversations around sustainability in fashion don't often feel aligned with what's being put out in mainstream media and culture. But there is a massive opportunity to harness the power of mass media and celebrities or artistic talent to drive change in the industry. In today's episode, my co-host Stella is interviewing Samata Pattinson, the CEO of RCGD Global, formerly known as Red Carpet Green Dress, to explore how we can drive the sustainable fashion conversation forward and expand it to wider audiences. I found this conversation super inspiring, and it was a reminder that each of us, every single one of us, belongs in the sustainable fashion movement and has a unique place here. If you're searching for where you might fit in in the movement through your career, I would definitely recommend checking out our free ebook on Conscious Fashion Collective, our sister platform, that is on 101 careers in sustainable fashion. Stella wrote up this guide and it is full of ideas on how you can blend your talents and skills with what's needed in the fashion industry to accelerate change. You can download the ebook at consciousfashion.co slash ebook. The link will also be in the episode description. As you might know, Conscious Fashion Collective also has a job board that you can check out and a newsletter with career resources and updates on the latest job opportunities in sustainable fashion. Those links are going to be in the episode description as well. I hope that can be a good resource for you if you are aspiring to work in sustainable fashion or you currently work in this space and want to continue to stay up to date. All right, now on to this week's episode with Samada, hosted by Stella. Sustainability has become little more than a buzzword in fashion. What would it really take to build a more sustainable, responsible, and equitable fashion system? That's what we're dedicated to exploring on the Conscious Style Podcast. Each Tuesday, you can join me, Elizabeth Joy, and me, Stella Hertantio, along with our lineup of change-making guests to navigate the sea of greenwashing and to build a better future for fashion. Welcome to the Conscious Style Podcast. I am Stella and today I have the absolute honor of being in conversation with Samata Pattinson about so many things because Samata's work is really interdisciplinary. But she attended COP27 at the end of last year, which is the biggest annual conference on climate change. So we're really going to dive into that and what role fashion played in those decision-making spaces. We're going to chat about how to make sustainable fashion culturally relevant and also what role celebrities play in the sustainable fashion movement and many, many more really interesting and important topics. And if you're unfamiliar with Samata, she is a British-born Ghanaian entrepreneur working in the field of sustainability across design, media and entertainment. She is a cultural sustainability activist, a published author, producer and a writer. 
And as the CEO of Red Carpet Green Dress, which is a woman-led global change-making organization that really brings sustainability to the forefront of fashion and the apparel industry. With them, she's working in pursuit of a more socially fair, equitable and representative fashion industry. I really was drawn to your work through your content that you post online, which really uncovers the nuances of the sustainable fashion movement. And I've been following you for a while and just so many thoughts have been sparked from your content online that I knew at some point I wanted to have more of a long form conversation <laughs> with you, especially since the season is exploring the intersection of fashion and climate. So I'm really thrilled to be here with you today. <laughs> Oh, I'm really happy to be here as well. And thank you for the lovely introduction. Um, doesn't really sound like someone I recognise, but thank you nonetheless. <laughs> um, and it's good to speak to you too. It's, it's exciting. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. And I know that feeling. <laughs> and before we dive into the details of your work and just all the things, amazing things that you do, I'd really love to start with some context just so that people can get to know you a bit better, maybe in your own words this time. <laughs> so could you share the story of how your curiosity with fashion began and also how this led you to work at the intersection of fashion and sustainability? Absolutely. So my relationship with the subject of sustainability, I guess, it started long before I used the word. And I think so often we are doing things and experiencing things that are part of this conversation before we put the name to them. In fact, we're doing them with other names to them. So I grew up in a household, a very dynamic Ghanaian household. I have two incredibly dynamic parents who always made sure that we were surrounded by culture growing up, aunts, uncles, food, music, fashion, clothes, all of it. And so inherently there were things we did in our house as children that now I'm seeing in the sustainability dialogue with these really big words attached to them that we just did because it's how our parents showed us to do things and it's how their parents showed them. Even just small things like my mum took a home economics class at school in Ghana along with Mel peer students. So she knew how to sew. So often she would fix things that we wore or she would make things for us to wear that would be unique and we would look after those things. Or for example, when we would have food and if there was Tupperware, that Tupperware would become a lunchbox. We were recycling and using circularity before we used the word. So I'm really lucky to have grown up in the household I grew up in and to have had two sisters who were very kind of lively and in themselves, just women who had really clear views about how you should treat people, how you should treat community, how you should treat living things. So I grew up around it. So it's not a surprise to me that I ended up in sustainable fashion at all. <laughs> it just isn't. I knew I would be in something like this. I just didn't know exactly what it would look like. That's amazing. I love how you spoke about like these generational practices that before we had the language or it became quote unquote a movement people have been practicing. And I think that's one of the things I'm so curious about, this balance of going, looking backwards at past practices and generational wisdoms and finding ways to like weave that into the present. Yeah. So I really love how you explained that and how you described like your, your family and your home and how that's formed a part of who you are today. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, it really has. And I always think that I do feel like looking back and trying to remember the things you did when you were younger that felt in tune with the things around you. Because often to me, that's what sustainability kind of is. It's, it's doing the things that feel in tune with what's around us that's living. 
and with the communities around us, it just feels right. So sometimes we overcomplicate it instead of just kind of sitting in ourselves and thinking like, when I was growing up, how did I feel being in green spaces? Or how did I feel being part of community? Or how did I feel being in rooms where everybody had a different story and a different perspective? You know, was that reassuring to me? And I think those things make a difference. Totally. And it's almost like we have become disconnected from that intuition just yeah. because of so many things in our society and the systems that we are part of. Mm. But it is finding simple ways to like tap into that and listen deeper and, you know, just pay attention to what we're drawn to. So, yeah, I love the way yeah. that you spoke about that, too. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> we're just agreeing with each other. But <laughs> I know. I love it. Well, it's, it's amazing. It's, kind of, it's really, but it's nice because it's strange it's strange because if you talk in these terms, like the way that we're talking, it's almost like there isn't anything disagreeable, right? And part of what I think is happening with almost pushback against sustainability is how are people not seeing that it's actually agreeable? Like how right. are people not seeing that? Of course, it should be a conversation back and forth of, yeah, no, totally, absolutely. Because ultimately, don't we all feel that this is something, this is how we want the world to look. This is how we want kind of natural environments around us to look. This is how we want communities and people around us to be treated. So it should be a series of agreements. The, I think the space where the disagreement sometimes can arise is how we get there. But like right. the fundamentals, we should be agreeing on, you know? <laughs> yes, completely. And it does take these kinds of conversations where you realize the connections between our different yeah. thoughts. And I think like that leads me perfectly into the question around your experience at COP, because I think that's a good example mm. of like, what does it take to have these conversations and create these spaces in places that like historically maybe, I don't know, haven't seen the connections, especially between fashion and climate. And I know you were quite vocal online about your experience and what you noticed about the way fashion was represented at COP27. And I was wondering if you could just share a few thoughts in general about the conference and within yeah. key decision-making spaces relating to fashion, like what surprised you and what did you notice? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think for me journeying to COP, I felt like it was important to have the fashion industry present in that conversation. And there is a kind of UN FCC or there's a fashion and climate charter that I just wasn't invited to participate in being transparent. And so I thought, well, there isn't a representation in that. And there isn't a representation for people with my perspective. Certainly. So I felt that it was important to be there and to be somebody representing like my voice, my perspective, and in parts, some of my community as well. So that's why I wanted to be there. And I had an opportunity to connect with leaders from different parts of the globe who also had similar narratives to my own and had similar stories of their struggle to participate in the main conversation. Right. So that was interesting. But when I got there, I was blown away by the response we had, because I took part in several panel conversations, one on climate and fashion, one on gender and climate, one on how you design for a decarbonized fashion or a decarbonized world. And, mm -hmm. and obviously fashion is primarily a design industry. It's, it's making things. So the question that I had to answer was, well, how do you design things and how do you make things with climate change in mind? So these were fascinating conversations to be part of, but I was consistently blown away by how people was so surprised that the apparel industry belonged in the conversation. The number of people that came up to me afterwards and said, I just really had no idea that the fashion or apparel industry contributed this much 
to global climate change. I had no idea that the design processes and the learnings from material innovation to new technology in the apparel industry could positively influence how we decarbonize other industries. I had people coming up to me and saying, you know, I saw you on stage, you know, I just thought, oh, you know, there's a well-dressed lady, but I didn't expect to learn anything. And you're kind of like, low-key, it's like kind of a backhanded compliment, but whatever. And that was really important to me to A, say, and be able to say, well, now you know, what will you do about it? And second of all, to be able to come away from COP and say, look, industry, whatever we're doing, we're not really kind of nailing it because there is a really serious conversation taking place about climate change, not just at COP, but globally, and people don't think we belong in it. So we need to accelerate people's understanding about why climate and fashion belong together. That was something that I felt so strongly about making sure it happens because we do contribute significantly. And lots of people don't understand how or why and where it comes from. Right. And I think it's really interesting because there is that massive disconnect. And it's interesting because we all are part of like the fashion and textile system. We all have like textiles in our homes or wear clothing. And (laughs) it's just funny how in one vein, it's fashion is viewed as like frivolous. I'm putting that in inverted commas. Yeah. Um, when it's yeah. actually like a very serious conversation. And like you were saying, it's key to our decarbonization. It's key to solutions around climate change. And this is something I thought of while you were speaking, but like, what did you kind of bring up to those leaders that convinced them that there was a connection? Like, were there specific points that you raised about like impacts? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. So, I mean, I tried to talk them through it. What I did is I did kind of an analogy and a breakdown of how where we start from like the raw material extraction stage where we are farming and harvesting cotton and using fertilizers and pesticides and the interaction of that with the oxygen in the soil where we're we're therefore releasing nitrous oxide or I tried to explain to them about the treatment of textiles when you're dyeing and coloring and manipulating textiles the energy use that's required to do that and even the transportation of all the different inputs that we need for fashion, textiles, buttons, zips, all of those things, how they're getting moved around this global industry where nothing is made in one place to another place where they're being made. And then the use of machines, sewing machines, like factories, all of these things that are contributing to climate and climate change. And all the way over to like that end user conversation where how we're looking after our things, how we're washing them, how we're drying them also creates an impact on climate change. And we need more recent figures, but I think like in 2018, the fashion industry contributed, I think some four to 6% of global carbon emissions. And so we've always been creating some form of climate impact. And so I tried to break that down, the different stages at which that happens, but also the solutions, like the opportunities for innovation to move different materials, more efficient machines, kind of nearshoring so we don't have such a widespread global apparel industry network where things are happening more locally. And then just educating consumers on the footprint that they can create from when they buy that garment, how they buy it, across to when they dispose of it. So I think taking it through that step by step was really useful and, mm-hmm. and offering incentive to governments. Like so what will you do? How will you incentivize designers? How will you incentivize brands and manufacturers? And how will you penalize as well those that know that there's this correlation and do nothing about it? Right. Yeah. I love how you took an entire 
ecosystem approach just to explain how yeah. connected all these things are because it's difficult to just talk about one impact without talking about another when it comes to fashion and I think there are so many probably activists and leaders who related to all of those industries that you just mentioned at COP but didn't realize the fashion interplay in it so yeah I love the holistic approach. Absolutely and I'll be honest I think I think there are lots of because I'm obviously from born and raised in Cambridge um, from from that kind of academic hotspot or kind of a hotspot of, of academic thinking there are lots of um intellectuals who consider themselves far too above this conversation mm. and they consider fashion to be something frivolous throwaway aesthetic purely not recognizing it's a high net worth value industry that employs so many people around the world and so i think what i quite enjoyed was taking on those people and helping them see that as you sit here in this room, clothed <laughs> by the apparel industry, you know, an industry you see no relationship with, but provides you with the very dignity within which you can stand on this stage in a suit and say what you're saying. Here are some of the connections. And I think that is always quite a thrill for me because it takes people away from feeling like, oh, fashion's this other space for these people that have I think there's such a condescension sometimes and I think it gave me an opportunity to say well look this is actually a business industry it's an industry that employs people it's an industry that's related to all of these different things including all these different SDGs since we're here you know um <laughs> this is something for you to talk about this is something for you to consider and I'm the antagonist in me enjoyed that <laughs> no I love that it's so great when you almost get to see people also have that light bulb moment of like aha okay I see the connection now and it gives them something to think about deeper when they like walk away. Yeah. Listening to you speak now in a bit broader sense, because I love the way you went into COP and approached kind of taking on these spaces. Yeah. But in general, how do you think we can begin to shift this perception of like fashion as frivolous and not important for serious conversations? Of course, I'm mm. quote, like inverted commering all of that and take steps to make sustainable fashion more, I guess, culturally relevant, if that's the term to use, just like widely recognized as yeah. some an impact of an industry that needs to change. Oh, that's an interesting one. I think one of the ways that we can just shift that is the way that we allow or the, the conversations we have about the fashion industry. And I think so often mainstream media or mainstream press, actually this is shifting, I think. I'm starting to open more newspapers, more magazines and see intellectual challenging discourse about the apparel industry. I'm actually starting to see that. I'm starting to see people being interviewed that are able to frame fashion in an environmental context, a social context, a human rights context, a biodiversity context, a psychology context. So I think the more that we can help people see that clothing, and I even wrote an article saying why we should stop saying fashion and start saying clothes. Mm -hmm. The more we just bring clothing down to a conversation that everyone is having voluntarily or involuntarily. Like if somebody walks into a room dressed in a specific way, people are already forming perceptions and ideas about that person. Whether it's a statement t-shirt they're wearing, whether they're wearing a headscarf, a hijab, whether they're wearing whatever they're wearing, people are starting to build a story about you as they visually take you in. And to fail to recognize that is to almost do a disservice to the role that clothing plays in bringing us together because clothing is an opportunity to start conversations, not end them. So I think if we can bring that conversation just 
down from this perception of fashion, fashion weeks, trends, inaccessibility, this is hot now, this is out of fashion, which feel like hostile words. If you look at things like semiotics and words and how words make people feel, the word fashion doesn't actually always make people feel warm and friendly. People might think about moments when they felt unfashionable or people might desire to be fashionable and not and so disregard it. So I think how we talk about it, first of all, I think is actually really significant. And then the conversations we're having, I also think those are significant. Like families talking about the impact that fast fashion has around the dinner table or three generations talking about a heritage piece of clothing and what it meant to them as they passed it down, whether it's a wedding dress or something someone's great-great-grandmother sewed, changes the conversation about fashion. So I think it's a couple of numerous different things we need to be doing. But I also think it's just shifting it into the political realm and the governmental realm of discourse as well, so that people can start taking it way more seriously than they do and see the need for legislation and see the need for true, serious conversation about clothing. Because if we don't do that, we'll continue to ignore the relationships between clothing and biodiversity, clothing and climate, clothing and justice. And I think that's a huge missed opportunity. I couldn't agree more. And I, I like, you know, the way you were kind of speaking about breaking out of echo chambers and silos. Like it needs to be a conversation that happens across industries, within our friend groups, families. It doesn't matter what kind of space it is. It has to feel accessible yeah. enough and people need to be able to see themselves in these conversations enough to initiate and to feel mm. like welcome to have debates and conversations and figure out what it looks like for them. Because I think, of course, sustainable fashion or clothing, which I like how you said, bring it down to the word clothing instead of fashion as, you know, fashion has a lot of connotations as for somebody like a specific type of person and not everybody yeah. feels represented in that. But yeah, to really make it something that people feel that they can find their own place in. Exactly. I like what you said just then about finding their own place in it, because, you know, as someone who's like zipped around this industry, I think it's full of people that want I have to say this the right way, but I think inside the industry, as well as outside the industry, this might feel a bit too like of a generalization, but I feel like the world is full of people who want to find their place in something, who want to feel a sense of belonging to something. I know I often feel like a bit of an oddball or someone who doesn't have, like who doesn't quite fit in in lots of different rooms and lots of different spaces, because I feel that I'm somebody that, you know, for example, like studied economics, finance, and management, but was always really creative or has always had interests. I used to love gaming, for example, and like taking computers apart and putting them back together again. There's all these different sides to me that I often might be in a space and think, God, I feel like such an oddball, like I'm such a kind of an outlier, right? And so I think fashion is full of people. The fashion industry is also full of people that feel the same way that I feel. And so why aren't we seizing? I think we have to seize these opportunities to bring people in, but not based on an aesthetic tribe look, but based on a kind of what are your genuine passions and interests in this world? And how can we connect that and fashion? That's how I want to pull people in versus your aesthetic fits my tribe. I think that there's a way to go deeper than we are. A hundred percent. I completely agree. And I think that's what's really going to be the powerful push of this movement to have everybody participating in exactly the way they feel they can contribute or just exist in their most 
kind of confident and comfortable and authentic way. Exactly. And I think like your work at Red Carpet Green Dress speaks a lot to this. But before we get there, I wanted to ask you one more question about COP because it's something I've been curious about, but I didn't attend. So <laughs> I didn't okay. know how to quite explore it. But I know that one of the big themes that came out of COP was loss and damage funding. Mm. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts on how this can be applied to fashion. Yeah, it's really tricky because, so first of all, it's a great question. It's tricky because right now I still feel like there aren't enough metrics to fully support or to really amplify this is how the global apparel industry is having this impact. Even the stat I shared with you about how we contribute to climate change is like a 2018 one. What I think we need to do as an industry is essentially do like an audit, like an end-to-end value cycle audit of this is how, at like all these different stages, how our apparel industry is impacting like biodiversity, these communities, creating climate change, and almost essentially correlate the true cost of that. Because to be able to assess for loss and damage, you need to have the metrics, you need to have the rigorous assessment, and you need to be able to present those financials of sorts and say, this is the relationship, this is the cause. This is where it's coming from. This is who it's impacting. This is what they are owed. It can't be this figurative thing you pluck thin air. It has to be tangibly measured. And I think what's interesting about this is when it comes to metrics, we have strong environmental metrics. So we can often say we can relate to water usage. We can relate to greenhouse gases. We can relate to very tangible things like deforestation. So there are ways that we can measure to make one t-shirt, this is the water, this is how it impacts deforestation. We can say, oh, 3% of global water pollution is due to how we're dying, for example. Like we can give those metrics. But on the social side, we're massively lacking. So there's a call to action there to assess the social impact of the global fashion industry through cultural appropriation, through intellectual property theft, through like the lack of protection of indigenous art forms, There's all of these things that need to be assessed and like the damages need to be added and calculated. And then we create a kind of business case or we create a case to then say, and this is a compensation owed. This is a remuneration owed. In lieu of that, and in lieu of the fact that this hasn't quite happened yet, I think what does ultimately need to be, at the very least, what needs to happen is the conversations taking place need to shift. Mm -hmm. Like fashion conversations happen in fashion capitals all the time. All too often, the people part of the sustainability equation is left out in fashion. But this is far from the case with the fair trade fashion brand Passion Lily. Passion Lily partners with five different artisan groups in India to create their beautifully printed dresses, jumpsuits, and a variety of other clothing and accessories. They have some really lovely organic cotton wrap dresses for spring and summer. As a Fair Trade Federation member, Passion Lily ensures that their partners are paying living wages to their makers, offering a safe and healthy work environment, and are investing in the overall well-being of the artisans. You can read the maker stories behind the block printing, ECAT weaving, apparel production, and other processes behind Passion Lily's pieces on their website. The brand also uses durable natural fibers and non-toxic dyes for their collections as well. You can check them out at ConsciousLifeInStyle.com forward slash passion. That's P-A-S-S-I-O-N. The link will also be in the episode description. 
Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And I was thinking about an episode I recorded for the podcast, which was released last year with Monica Moisin, and she works at the Cultural Intellectual Property Rights Initiative. And so I was thinking about the work that they do in really uncovering like the work of artisan communities and putting value to it and really creating ways to protect the intellectual property. And listening to you speak just made me think like there is so much impact that we haven't measured yet and like value that we haven't measured yet. And we needed Mm -hmm. to be in those terms that you were saying to be able to understand how to move forward. Yeah. Absolutely. And and there are really incredible groups across the continent of Africa as well, because I think even in this conversation, something that keeps coming up for me is often, and this is, I think, part of my challenge with this space, is often it doesn't include, I mean, it says it includes, but it doesn't include. A lot of these conversations are centered on specific, well-known communities. So let's take, for example, and the reason I'm making this point is because this is about bringing all the communities impacted in. It's not about saying this specific community is impacted and we don't talk about these other communities and almost shaming this community for being recognized. That's not that community's right. fault. It deserves its recognition. They should be protected. They should be remunerated. This is actually a conversation about who are we leaving out? So even when we talk about, say, garment workers and garment workers' rights, we often cite the Rana factory collapse and the exploitation of garment workers in parts of the world in the global south like Bangladesh and India, there should be an opportunity following that conversation to open up and say, what are we doing about the rights of garment workers in Ethiopia, in Rwanda? The conversation should never end just there. And that's what keeps happening. It's like we recognize an issue. We recognize one place it's taking place. We focus primarily on that. And then we almost, we don't broaden our borders we don't spread the spotlight out further and further and further to yes. make sure we bring everyone who's affected meanwhile ethiopia's garment workers are the lowest paid in the world so that's really interesting to me and so when you you talk about kind of the cultural or the intellectual property it makes me want to highlight groups like there's like the working group on indigenous populations in africa or africa mm-hmm. earth the africa earth jurisprudence movement These are um, organizations that are doing similar work in the continent. So I want everyone listening to know we should be looking as far and as wide as possible in those conversations. Reason I'm so like passionate about it is because what I don't want to happen is when we start talking about loss and damages, we don't include those groups. We don't include those communities either because we spent so long just keeping a really narrow remit on who can even get compensated. Anyone affected in the global south should be compensated and obviously in the global north as well and I think that's what is really important to me you know to say yeah and thank you for highlighting those organizations and I'll definitely leave links to them in the show notes and I'm looking forward to checking out their work because I was thinking like how have I never heard of them and I have been born and raised on the continent in South Africa which is on the continent and it's also like what you were saying about I've been reading a lot about Ethiopia recently, but the way media spotlights things. And then, like you said, we have a fixation. So then we really dive into what's going on in a specific place, but we don't draw the parallels between lots of different countries and often very similar structures due to things like colonialism, which have replicated lots of different structures in many different countries. So I agree. And I think that to an extent, people are banking on us not drawing those parallels. So it's good that we continue to highlight the need to do it. 
Totally, totally. And I like what you were saying also about we need to look for what's not said or what's not shown. Yeah. <laughs> look between the lines and the gray spaces, which is often a little bit trickier, but it's so important because if we're going to be building a holistic and inclusive movement, that's the work that really needs to be done. It's not just like highlighting all the things we already know. <laughs> so exactly. thank you for that important reminder. No, that's okay. I wanted to jump from here a bit into your work with red carpet green dress because I'm really fascinated by that as well and I guess could you just start us off by sharing a bit about the organization and what you do there and then how red carpet green dress aims to address what we've been talking about accessibility and cultural relevance in fashion yeah sure so I mean in a nutshell the best way to describe it is I kind of came into red carpet green dress which is a women-led organization founded by Susie Amos Cameron and I came into it as essentially a design contest winner who saw an advert and said, oh, I think I can design something sustainable for the red carpet. Like that was my whole way of discovering this space. I knew that fashion had some other better way of doing things. So I entered it, I won, and essentially worked my way through the organization from the contest winner to campaign director and now CEO. And so the work we do straddles so many different realms. We do everything from red carpet partnerships like red carpet green dress at the Oscars, working with emerging and established fashion brands to dress talent across to internship and work experience opportunities for students, design competitions, across to academic in like thought leadership work, writing industry reports. We've got one coming out this year on cultural sustainability. And so that's kind of it in a nutshell. And what we do is, is very much in line with everything I feel passionate about education that's whether it's design colleges or families or global apparel industry or businesses it's about teaching and educating and showing people the links between all these conversations that we're having and then the different things they can do working with brands to help them make better decisions and making sure that even with our campaigns like red carpet green dress at the oscars we're putting culture and representation at the heart of it and making sure that the conversations are taking place led by ambassadors or speakers from different communities, different cultures, telling different stories. So it's been a really fun and exciting project and just adventure to go on since winning the contest to just trying to figure out how we do things differently in the sustainable fashion world, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. And I think it aligns so well with what you were talking about earlier in terms of wanting sustainability and social impact in fashion to really be involved in so many different spaces from academia to Oscar spaces that feel like yeah. difficult to access for a lot of people. And, you know, it's got me thinking about luxury fashion on the one hand and the lives mm -hmm. of garment workers on the other, often so far apart geographically and sometimes not so far apart, but the worlds still feel really far apart. And in your work, I was wondering how you managed to like merge these worlds and ensure that working in luxury also supports the lives of garment workers. Yeah, so it's really interesting. On the luxury conversation, I wanted to also, I want to bring another point in after that because, so luxury to me, I've always been drawn to the luxury fashion industry. I've always been drawn to luxury garments. I think I used to aspire to, I mean, my when I was designing were red carpet worthy gowns, you know. I love the feel of a luxury material. I love the time it takes. I love the tailoring, the thought, the construction. If you know how to make clothes, you know that making a t-shirt or making couture gown, like two different ways of making, two different like, skill sets, and both are incredible. 
And I was always drawn towards that end of things. So for mm-hmm. me, the luxury space, it's not only about what's being made, the materials, the inputs, the construction, the level of expertise of some of these coutures. I mean, I've had the chance to see firsthand and work with like, the head of couture at Westwood and see just the amount of fine tuning and thought that goes into proportions and just it's mesmerizing to actually be able to watch this at work and to me luxury isn't just about what's being made it's about an experience it's about building a community and I think any brand or any person that thinks that luxury ends with the item doesn't understand that luxury is supposed to be about a community a story a heritage a legacy an honoring of skills artisans and it's supposed to me also to be about creating almost this idea of wealth generation through security. And that doesn't always happen. And I've seen both sides of it. I've seen the luxury industry that, that for example, for me still kind of uses fur. I've seen the luxury industry that outsources piece rates so that somewhere back there, you've got someone working from home doing that fine embroidery. You know, I've seen mm-hmm. that side of it. And then I've seen the atelier side where young interns are being given the opportunity to learn from people that have been doing this for like 50, 60 years and who are trying to protect these skills and ways of making. I've seen the luxury industry in Lagos and in Accra because we keep thinking luxury is still Europe only, but luxury is Accra, it's Lagos, it's all of these other parts of the world. It's, It's Indonesia, it's Jakarta, it's all of these other spaces. So if you look at it in that broad way, sense, then you recognize that luxury across the world is being delivered in different ways. And in some of those cases, it's being delivered in a highly sustainable way. If you go and case study some of the luxury brands in India, some of the luxury brands in Ghana and Nigeria, you'll see incredible protectionism around the garment workers and the whole ecosystem that goes into making those clothes. And then when you see it in other parts of the world or in um, companies, you see sometimes more of an exploitative model. So I think my journey has always been to try and understand who's involved, to try and understand the process and at every stage possible to try and protect that process, but also to communicate out that luxury isn't just a product. It's not just an expensive product. There's a lot that goes behind the creation of that product and it should be that way. But the other point I wanted to make that I think is so interesting because it keeps coming up is in the black community. I have so many designers come up to me, and I've said this before so many times online, who are being discouraged from participating and building their own luxury brands because they're being told that Black communities don't buy luxury or Black communities can't afford luxury or that they're not designing for their community. And I think that's kind of mind-blowing considering like our disposable income as a community is really, really, really quite something to be reckoned with. So when you link sustainability in the luxury conversation, even through that perspective, it's, well, how are we encouraging the growth of Black-owned luxury brands? How are we encouraging the growth of Indigenous-owned luxury brands? How are we encouraging the renaming of luxury that comes from the Global South as couture? How are we challenging those perceptions? So it's such a bigger question than, than on surface, you would think. And I don't know if that even answers your question, but it's what comes to mind initially. It does completely. And I think you're spot on when you're saying like we really need to rethink our perception of luxury but also rethink it as an approach like it's a way of designing and creating and and that yes can be exploitative and it can also be really really holistic and 
work with people that have always been sustainable and have been practicing these things for many, many decades. And how do we shift it away from, because I think a lot of the time when the word luxury comes up, we all have a similar kind of vision that comes to mind. It's probably a European brand. It's probably like a heritage or hallmark brand that's been around for a very long time. And we need to really unpack why that is and how we can shift it. Yeah. And actually on your point of what you've said and completely like, I couldn't agree more with what you've said. The other thing I want to say about luxury and what it is, is I think often what I find quite irking is I think people will will go into spaces and barter. Now, let me put it this way. They'll go to a boutique. I'm going to use, I'm using my words carefully to challenge people's perceptions. They'll go to a boutique in Marrakesh or they'll go into a boutique in Accra or they'll go to a boutique in Tokyo. They'll go into a boutique and they'll see something that's obviously handmade, artisan, highly crafted. And they will say, what's your lowest price? Whereby they would never, so this is luxury. This is a relative luxury, i.e. looking at the goods that are made in that community, that's a relative luxury. Like that item is luxury. And they'll say, what's your lowest price? They'll try and barter. Yeah, they would never think of going into a boutique in Paris or London and saying, what's your lowest price? So I think, again, when we say luxury, who are we allowing to own the word? Who are we allowing to be associated with the word? And how are we behaving? All of this is the conversation about sustainability, not just how garment workers are being treated, but it's how the craft is being perceived, depending on which part of the world it's being sold in. Yes, completely. And it's about also shifting our fashion aspirations. Like I find in South Africa, we have really, really incredible, I would consider luxury designers, like really beautiful. Mm -hmm. So many people still aspire to these big name brands that come from overseas and the ones that we all know. (laughs) And they're usually fast fashion. It feels a lot of the time too. But I wish that we could shift our aspirations and look at what we have here. Like look at the immense talent, the way these designers like Sindiso Komalo and like Lucanio Omdingi, if I can think of two off the top of my head, are like really Mm. working with such beautiful materials and have such strong storytelling behind their brands. Like how do we aspire Mm. to people in our own spaces? Yeah, which I loved how you were saying that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you use the word decolonize, but it is part of that wider conversation that's allowed some perspectives to be allowed here and others to be allowed here. And when I said about, you know, the the fashion capitals and I said something earlier about that again like just pushing those out and and making these other communities destinations yeah and I think what we've been chatting about touches on this but I think what fascinated me about your work with red carpet green dress as well Mm -hmm. is kind of like you're working from the inside out like I think for me and like a lot of I guess people that may consider themselves activists like we're pushing back the system from the outside but you're like working with a lot of Hallmark brands and a lot of like celebrity spaces and yeah. I guess what we could we call luxury spaces that feel yeah. very inaccessible a lot of the time. Yeah. So I was wondering if you have any thoughts on like what the benefits are of working from the inside out when it comes to creating change as opposed to like the other way around. Not that one is better than yeah. the other, but you know. <laughs> no, no. Well, I, no, I like to think we straddle both. I know I do. I think on one hand through our work, we are working with brands and so on. And that's education. That's awareness. That's trying to drive and understand what are the obstacles for you guys to do this? Like, why is it so hard? What are the challenges you're facing? And how can we point you in the direction of better, right? So that's, that is necessary. I just think it's necessary because I don't think you will get, I don't think the industry will get where it needs to be with just one approach. 
I think all of them are needed, actually. I think there's kind of outside C2B, consumer to business-led pressure that needs to happen. And I think there's like a B2B collaboration and communication that needs to happen. And then there's like a B2C business to citizen transparency that needs to happen. So I think all of those things need to happen for us to get where we need to get. So yeah, so on one side, there's the education and there's the awareness and there's a solution-based approach, but there's the advocacy too. Like we work with Greenpeace, we work with NGOs like the Awaj Foundation who are campaigning and who are trying to build legislation and who are trying to protect and garment workers' rights to organize. Or So there are ways that we do both sides of it. And I think that's just where it works for us because we can see what can be achieved by working with industry and we can see what can be achieved by working with citizens. The most recent kind of to citizen awareness piece we did was for Billie Eilish Overheated, where I did a presentation, what I think is actually a bit of a workshop on the relationship between fashion and climate. And that was really about educational awareness. That's the kind of stuff we love to do too. And remember, our founder founded a school, (laughs) which is educating our next generation of leaders about sustainability. So we've always straddled both on a personal level. Activism is something I actively participate in every day, in how I live, the conversations I have, and even the collaborations I try and do. So I think we'll always do both. I don't think one's better than the other. I completely agree. And I think we do need both because we need like people to come from it at all angles to see how complex and nuanced it all is. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is what I love exactly. about the movement. Like I feel like there really is a space for everybody, depending on what you're interested in and how you feel, what you feel passionate about. I feel the same way. I feel like it should be that way. I mean, what's with all the gatekeeping, you know, like there isn't, I just think if we start doing that with the sustainable fashion space, and to me, it's almost triggering because it's almost like re-bullying because I think the industry can be quite exclusionary and lots of people can feel bullied in this industry or excluded. So I think let's not replicate that side of the fashion industry in the sustainable space, like, Let's keep that for purpose for what it's supposed to be about. So absolutely, there are different ways people can participate. No one should feel like their little way of doing or their way that really resonates with them. Otherwise, you're forcing people to fake it. And that never works. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly that. And I think like (laughs) it's just really important because we don't want to, like you were saying, repeat the same mistakes again and again. There's no point. And it's also an injustice to make it exclusionary because it ignores the roots of where all these practices came from in the first place. And that was never meant to be like a gatekept space. You know, that was just about living in harmony with people and, and our environments. Absolutely. Yeah. And I wanted to, you mentioned Billie Eilish and I think our society has like a fascination with the idea of celebrity. And as somebody that works like quite closely, I mean, I know you work across many, many different spaces, but quite closely with, I guess, celebrity in a sense. What role do you think celebrities play in the sustainable fashion movement? And like, do you have any good examples of people that have really contributed to changing aspirations in that way? You know, I think the funny thing about, I don't even really use the word celebrities, I'll be honest. I just use the word talent because I, first of all, I really want to do that because I think, I think there's celebrities and there's talent and that's not disparaging either. But what I like to focus on is, the talent of that person that's obviously placed them in a space where they have a visibility. So if you're looking at a Billy, her talent 
like how skilled and talented she is is the reason she has the visibility that she has honestly and everyone we've worked with has brought a beautiful talent to this planet whether it's entertained us and given us joy like Naomi Harris with the films that she makes and the way she portrays her characters mm-hmm. so talent to me is another way of using words to just change the way people are seeing the person we're interacting with first right and right. then Beyond that, it's then, okay, so they have a platform and they're an individual on a journey of some sort at some stage. Where are they at? What is interesting to them? How can we take what is genuinely already interesting to them, connect it to the apparel industry and sustainability and making a positive change? Let them tell the story through their experience, their eyes, so they're not faking it and reach the audience they have and say, look, this is another side to me. This is something else I'm interested in. We can do this slightly in a different way. These are different choices we can make. You decide, but these are different choices you can make. I think everyone should be allowed to do that, whether there's a talent or not, whether they're a celebrity or not. So how do we leverage those people to reach communities we wouldn't reach before? That's how I see it. So beyond that, I don't have a pressure or an expectation I place on people. Beyond that, come to us or talk to us about what is genuinely interesting to you. Is it animal rights? Is it are you like an ocean loving kind of National Geographic reading fanatic? Are you like, what is your thing? And we'll find that relationship and we'll make that the message and it will be real because it is real to you. Um, that's how I approach it always. And that's why I think like whether it's uh, Lakeith Stanfield, and I use him as an example often because I love him and his work, but <laughs> whether too. it's him as an actor, like speaking to the black community and giving them the chance to say like, we've always been in this. The black community is always thrifted, hand-me-downs, cultural zeitgeist, you name it. We've been culturally appropriated to high heavens. For him to have that chance to speak or Tiffany Haddish to talk about like re-wearing is not a thing. Why are we celebrating it? It's what most people do. Across to like size inclusivity or bringing the disabled community in. So I don't know. I just, I like to like be really careful with the conversation about celebrity because it just has a reaction. And if I just say, well, this is the talent we're working with. This is the stuff that is passionate. This is what they feel passionately about. And this is how we've connected their passion with our cause and given it amplification with Billy's yes. climate. So that's my approach. Cause I just, I think otherwise celebrity becomes alienating and it's not supposed to be, it's supposed to be, how do we reach more people that might find this interesting and might want to be doing things differently as a result? Completely. And I think it almost taps into what we were speaking about right at the beginning around like intuition and really bringing this person down to like a human level. Like, let's speak about what you're interested in and the way you view the world. And yes, you have a much bigger platform than many other people in the world, but that's, you know, we all have our spheres of influence and it's all relative. But I think as you were speaking, I was also thinking about the way celebrities have kind of been used as greenwashing schemes a lot more recently mm-hmm. in like yeah. fast fashion and the way your approach is so different to that it's really speaking to the person yeah. about what they're interested in and how you can partner on that instead of just using a celebrity as like a leverage or marketing point to push out certain messages and like try and almost trick people into believing them such a good point such a good point you just made about the kind of celebrity fast fashion endorsement greenwashing piece and i think that's why often it sparks outrage because it just doesn't make sense And what I can confidently say is that we've never collaborated where people have kind of fallen out and been like, oh my gosh, that makes no sense like that. Because it's always got to be something like, even the conversation with Emma Roberts, she's like, I love vintage. 
Like that's my thing. I love vintage. And we're like, fantastic. Let's build on that. Let's build on that. Priyanka Bose. Like she's like, I love in her culture, she talks about reusing, not wasting. So we're like, okay, let's make that part of the story. Like in India, she's talking about repurposing saris and all of these great things that are happening. Okay, let's make that part of the story. So as long as it's something that is actually part of that person's being, <laughs> part of who they are and what they're genuinely interested in, whatever stage they are. Because I think what's challenging is if someone's just beginning their journey and they're a, a talent or a celebrity, mm-hmm. are we saying you're so early in your journey that you can't even talk about this and you certainly can't endorse anything? Because I find that tricky too. Like, unless they're saying, I'm just beginning, I'm on a journey, I've got lots to learn, this is all stuff I haven't done, and they're aligning with the right kind of brand, then it's different. But I think the problem comes when you've got someone that apparently has not openly communicated sustainability because you don't know what people are thinking at home. You don't know if that person's at home, like, where's their plastic in the kitchen? Why did you buy another one when we've got one? You don't know how they're running their household. They could be eco-warriors. You just have no idea. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's because they're just newly presenting it to the public. And then they've aligned with a fast fashion brand that's just churning stuff out. People find that hard to digest. Whereas if it was like a celebrity that you might not have known is interested, but their first step is with a brand that you think, okay, yeah, that's a good, that's a good sustainable brand. Okay. And they're saying, look, I'm just beginning, but I believe in this and I'm trying to learn. I feel people are more accepting of it, you know? So it's just an approach thing as well and a a communications thing and an alignment thing. I think it's, if that's right, then it can be acceptable. Totally. And I think there is something so welcoming when somebody admits like, I'm also on the start of my journey. We're learning this together and we're going to take one step at a time. But I think exactly as you said, it's an approach. Like, how is this marketed? Is it just out of the blue? And this person hasn't even spoken on the topics in any of the press coverage. It's really just like their face on billboards and on marketing campaigns. And yeah, I think we do, we crave that kind of human connection a lot of the time, Mm -hmm. which it feels like we lack in some of those fast fashion campaigns. And it feels like you are doing really well at, at red carpet, green dress. Thank you. Now we're RCGD Global. So we've, our name, we've, we've rebranded since last year, actually two years ago. But um, no, thank you so much. And we're, we're definitely, we're still beginning. <laughs> That's the funny yeah. thing. We're still beginning too. So we're learning all the time. Yeah, as we all are, as we all should be. Like we're never done exactly. learning. <laughs> exactly. And I think that actually brings us to my final question. And this has been an incredible conversation. I feel like I'm going to walk into the weekend with so much to think about, which is such a good feeling. <laughs> same, <laughs> <But> to, same. <laughs> good. It's a great like high to end a Friday on. <laughs> yes, um, it is. But to end off the episode on like a hopeful note, I wanted to ask you the question that we ask every guest on the podcast, which is what does a better future for fashion look like to you? Hmm. I had to close my eyes. A better future for fashion to me looks decentralized and culturally rich and representative and dynamic and brings the globe to meet itself right in the middle where there's an opportunity for voices to be heard that are often undermined and for true redistribution of wealth, visibility and power to take place. And it just involves an entirely new type of system where like equity and value is placed on human lives 
at the very center and we're working collaboratively to make sure that as one grows, we all grow together. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Subscribe or follow the Conscious Style Podcast for more episodes like this one. It would also mean so much if you could take a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or rating on Spotify. This helps our content on conscious fashion reach more people. Have some thoughts after listening to this episode? Let's continue the conversation over on Instagram. You can DM at Conscious Style. For more slow fashion resources, subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, The Conscious Edit at ConsciousLifeInStyle.com forward slash edit. Subscribers also get access to a 12-page roundup of sustainable fashion resources upon signing up. Again, that link is ConsciousLifeInStyle.com forward slash edit. The link is also below in the episode description. Thanks again for listening today. There will be another episode next Tuesday. In the meantime, you can check out our backlog of the 70 plus episodes we've already published. Bye for now and talk to you again soon.